Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, December 6th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Adam is back from the big annual blood disease meeting in San Diego. He'll fill us in on a novel but still experimental treatment that uses gene therapy to potentially cure sickle cell disease. The FDA just approved the first drug for a rare autoimmune disorder. Our stat colleague, Megan Akeshevan, joins us to talk about why patients are terrified about what this will mean for their access to this treatment. This is a big moment for Moderna Therapeutics, which by the end of this week is expected to pull off the biggest initial public offering in biotech history. We'll talk about what's at stake and what to watch for as the market reacts. And finally, we'll bring you another lightning round. That'll mean quick takes on a cancer testing startup's IPO plans, a biotech investor's prison sentence, and monkeys on a plane. But first, a word about StatPlus. If you enjoy listening to The Read Out Loud, consider subscribing to Stat Plus. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. That's 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. The American Society of Hematology annual meeting is the world's largest scientific conference dedicated to blood diseases, which includes blood cancers. This year's ASH meeting, as it's popularly known, just finished up in San Diego, California, and Adam was there for stat, covering and writing about the new blood disease science being presented. He also stayed on a houseboat. It's true, I did. The houseboat was very nice. I highly recommend it. So Adam, you wrote a lot of stories from the ASH meeting this year. Many of them were focused on new treatments for sickle cell disease. Was this a big focus at this year's meeting? Yeah, you know, it was, Rebecca. Uh, You know, ASH is a huge meeting. There's tens of thousands of posters, presentations spread over four days. So there really isn't kind of like one type of blood disease or blood cancer that stands out over others. But I think for me, I did find myself drawn to covering sickle cell disease this year, mainly because we're kind of finally seeing significant number of really effective therapies being developed, including some potential cures, uh, which is, you know, kind of sorely needed. To step back for a second, sickle cell disease is a rare inherited blood disorder that results from a mutation in the gene for hemoglobin. That is the oxygen-carrying molecule that resides inside red blood cells. So this mutation causes those red blood cells to deform into a crescent or sickle shape, which can clump together and get stuck inside blood vessels. And that, of course, is bad for health. People with sickle cell disease suffer from anemia and episodes of extreme pain. In the U.S., people with sickle cell disease die on average when they're in their 40s. Yeah, it's really a horrible disease. And and so, therefore, you know, it's kind of gratifying when you can throw around the word cure and kind of back it up with science. So this year, I wrote about two different potential cures for sickle cell disease. They both use gene therapy, but have different targets. So let's talk about one of those gene therapy approaches you wrote about this week, which induces a patient's body to produce a form of healthy oxygen-carrying hemoglobin, usually made by fetuses and newborns. 
Yeah, that's right, Damien. This was pretty cool. You know, so this gene therapy is being developed by Boston Children's Hospital. So scientists have long known that there are some people born with the sickle cell mutation, but they never develop the actual disease. So when you look inside the blood of these people, they have high levels of something called fetal hemoglobin, which is both great at carrying oxygen and is also naturally resistant to sickling. Now, for most of us, fetal hemoglobin disappears soon after birth. We have this genetic switch that turns on and it tells our body to start making adult hemoglobin instead of fetal hemoglobin. But as you explained, Adam, in some people with the sickle cell mutation, that genetic switch remains off. So their bodies continue to make fetal hemoglobin. They have sickle cell disease traits, but they do no harm because the higher levels of fetal hemoglobin are protective. So that's right, Rebecca. Um, and here's the cool sciencey part. So the researchers at Boston Children's Hospital figured out a way to engineer a gene therapy that essentially turns off or silences that fetal to adult hemoglobin genetic switch. So when you infuse this gene therapy into patients with sickle cell disease, their bodies once again start making fetal hemoglobin. And this fetal hemoglobin, which doesn't sickle and carries oxygen really well, replaces the misshapen and sickled adult hemoglobin. And so this Boston Children's Gene Therapy is working so far in that single patient, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, this is really early days. The data presented at the ASH meeting came from a single sickle cell disease patient. I actually talked to this patient. He's 21 years old. He lives here in Boston. And, you know, he's been going to the doctor for regular monthly blood transfusions since he was three years old. Earlier this year, he was the first patient to be treated with this fetal hemoglobin gene therapy. And since that treatment, he's been transfusion free. And when the doctors look into his blood, they see no evidence of sickle cell disease. That's really encouraging to hear. So next steps here, is that to treat more patients and follow them over time? Yeah, that's right, Rebecca. So Boston Children's has plans to administer the gene therapy to additional patients. And then they have to follow them, collect more data, because, you know, the big unanswered question here is durability. You know, really to be called a cure, these gene therapies, you know, which are going to be really expensive and do come with some safety risks, need to last a lifetime. For now, the gene therapy results are positive. They're really exciting. But definitive proof is going to take more time. usually celebrate drug approvals. But today, we're going to talk about a new approval that's being met with dread from many in the patient community. That's right, Rebecca. You know, last week, the FDA approved the first treatment for a rare autoimmune disorder. The drug is made by a Florida drug company called Catalyst Pharmaceuticals, and it treats a condition called Lambert-Eaton Myasthenic Syndrome, or LEMS for short. And as it usually does with such approvals, the FDA said that there was a long-standing need for a treatment for the condition. But that's not exactly the case, is it? Right, Damien. So in reality, physicians have been prescribing a nearly identical treatment off-label uh, way back since the 1980s. That drug was never formally approved by the FDA. Instead, LEMS patients have been paying a few hundred dollars a month to get the drug from a compounding pharmacy. Or they've been supplied the drug for free from a drug company called Jacobus Pharmaceutical. But now that Catalyst has an FDA approval in hand, everything could change, and patients seem likely to pay the price. Joining us today to talk about this remarkable story is Megan Akeshevan, Stats Biotech Correspondent based in Los Angeles. Thanks, guys. I'm uh, also joined by my 10-month-old son, who is being rather vocal right now, so sorry if he interrupts. 
No problem. We'd love it if your son could chime in with his thoughts on drug pricing as well. So Megan, what do we know about what's going to happen now that Catalyst has this FDA approval? We basically know that Catalyst is going to stick a pretty hefty price tag on this drug, FERDAPS. We don't know the exact pricing yet, but analysts are telling us that Catalyst is looking somewhere in the ballpark of between $100,000 and $300,000. We won't find out until they have an investor call um, next week, but they will lay out their pricing plans. And basically, the patients who have been taking this drug for free or, you know, like a discounted price, basically, are probably going to have... some new numbers to look at. So Megan, I know after the whole Martin Shkreli saga with an old drug for toxoplasmosis, the FDA started a program to encourage competition for drugs like this that, that might be off patent, but only produced by one manufacturer. Could that apply to Catalyst? Like, could a compounding pharmacy start selling cheap FERDAPs? So I actually talked to uh, Jacob Sherko over at um, NYU. He's a he's a law professor who studies the patents of FDA rulings, things like that. And the long and short of it is no. It's it, because it's not the same thing as the uh, toxoplasmosis drug. Basically, um, with uh, with Daraprim, it doesn't look like Turing Pharma actually had the the intellectual property around it. They just happened to command the biggest pipeline of the drug. In this case, with Catalyst, because they get um, orphan drug access to this, this drug that they didn't develop, um, they do get just exclusive rights for about seven years. I actually talked to a compounding pharmacy also, and they they were like, there is no way in heck we can uh, touch a drug that um, has received this new you know, labeling because you know they could get in major trouble with the government. So... That sort of shuts down um, generics competition and compounding pharmacies. Uh, I, I believe that if Catalyst wants to, it can just have full access to that market. So, Megan, you interviewed a number of patients with LEMS who've been, you know, getting the drug for free or at a low cost for years. What did they tell you about their experiences and fears about what could happen now? The concern is that um, Catalyst will uh, basically make it impossible for Jacobus to continue providing the drug um, at no cost to patients, or even at a cost, um, I I guess that supply is just going to get shut down. And basically, the patients are are terrified because there's no guarantee how much insurance is going to cover these drugs. Um, Other patients who live here in the U.S., they may have fantastic insurance, and the uh, insurers may cover the drug completely, or um, it could be a situation just like what happened in England where the National Health Service denied coverage entirely. I mean, there's no guarantee that Medicare will cover a $100,000 or $300,000 drug that was previously available for free. Like, there's not a ton of precedence for this. They just don't know. And that that uncertainty of whether they're going to get this life-saving drug is, is very terrifying. And so, Megan, you talked to a neurologist who said basically that Catalyst is taking advantage of a loophole in the Orphan Drugs Act, which theoretically is meant to give incentives to companies that develop drugs for rare diseases. Can you tell us more about about what that means? The Orphan Drug Act basically um, encourages drug makers to pursue drugs that are um, otherwise like there wouldn't be that much of an economic payoff. Unfortunately, the doctor that I spoke to said that uh, Catalyst was exploiting a loophole because they did go down that orphan drug pathway with the FDA, but they didn't actually research or develop anything. Um, they, they did the complicated clinical trial work. I mean, it's, it's very costly to run a drug uh, through clinical trials, but since they didn't do the actual legwork of preclinical work and, you know, testing it, just discovering the drug in the first place, it, it didn't really fit the... Um, 
the initial mission of the Orphan Drug Act is what is what this doctor told me anyway. So, Megan, I just clarify something for a second. The drug FERDAPs that Catalyst just got approved, there's really no difference between that and the older medications that LEMS patients have been taking for years and getting either for free or at a sharply reduced cost. No, not at all. The The drug that uh, patients have been taking for decades is called amifampridine. And um, basically what French researchers did in the early 2000s was tack on a phosphate group. So it became amifampridine phosphate. And that phosphate makes it shelf stable so the drug doesn't need to be refrigerated, which is convenient, but you know, it doesn't work any differently. Uh, Jacobus Pharmaceuticals ran its own set of cr- clinical trials and basically uh, the results were comparable. So Megana, the argument you hear from companies like Catalyst is that getting FDA approval and charging money for a drug actually helps more patients get access to it. Does that hold water here? Um, in, in a sense, yes. So some of the families think so anyway, um, because it's very difficult to go through the compassionate use pathway, which is what patients had to do to get the drug from Jacobus. That means that they had to have their doctor appeal to the FDA and ask for access to an experimental drug that hadn't been approved. That takes time. It's a lot of red tape. So sure, I mean, if you if you have an approved drug, then you can, you know, cut the step of going directly through the FDA. Um, however, in this case, it's just, it's a little more controversial because so many patients had been getting the drug for free or for a rather like inexpensive price. So it's a matter of patients putting in the legwork versus versus not. It's controversial. I mean, it's just it's a it's a controversial approval for a reason. Megan, thanks for joining us in the show today. And you and your son are welcome anytime. Thanks so much. So, folks, as you listen to this podcast, biotech history is being made. That's right. On Thursday night, Moderna Therapeutics is expected to set the price for the biggest ever biotech IPO, raising about $500 million at a valuation above $7 billion. So you may have heard about crashing stock prices, a looming trade war, and a recession on the horizon. And you might be wondering, why on earth would anyone do a giant IPO right now? And you'd be asking a very good question. And timing is among a slew of fascinating details about Moderna's IPO, which has pretty sweeping implications both for biotech and for the market as a whole. So, Damien, first of all, how did Moderna get to be a $7 billion, that's with a B, company in the first place? So the big idea of Moderna is cooking up synthetic messenger RNA that you can inject into the body and basically trick people's cells into making proteins that treat disease. The drug industry has made billions of dollars selling protein-based treatments, and so Moderna pitches itself as a revolutionary alternative. And so earlier before we recorded this podcast, Damien was telling us a fun fact about the company's name. Yes. So I have devoted hours, probably that total a number of days of my life thinking about Moderna. But only about a year ago did I realize that the last three letters of the company are R, N, and A, which is obviously signaling what they do. So maybe my opinion should be taken with a grain of salt with respect to observation. Who knew, though? This was news to me. So back on topic, Damien, how many mRNA drugs has this company made? Therein lies the counter-argument to that $7 billion valuation. Moderna has been at work at this for about eight years, and not only do they not have any approved products, but their only mRNA treatments with solid human data are vaccines. Obviously, vaccines are important to human health, but they're not nearly as lucrative as drugs for chronic disease, which is why a lot of people in biotech have some serious doubts about Moderna's valuation. And that's what makes uh, this IPO interesting. Moderna has hired 11 bankers to get this thing off the ground. So it seems pretty likely that they're going to raise that $500 million that they want. 
But Friday, December 7th, that could be a different story. That's when Moderna's shares will start trading on the open market, and we'll find out whether the general public is as optimistic about the company's future as its private backers are. And as we mentioned, this isn't happening in a vacuum. 60 biotech companies have gone public this year. That's the most since 2014. But the sector has been in a slump for the last few months, and that's dragged the median biotech IPO into the negative. And so that sets the stage for this giant year-end IPO in the form of Moderna that could be sort of like a Punxsutawney Phil kind of thing for 2019. If everything goes well, you can imagine that future Modernas or, or companies that hope to go public will be optimistic about their odds of doing so in January or later in 2019. If all of this goes really poorly and Moderna trades down after going public, it could cast a long shadow over biotech in the early part of next year. So speaking of shadows, Damien, is biotech's groundhog going to see its shadow? I think Moderna is going to be fine in the short term. There's a there's a reason you hired that many bankers and the company has proven itself adept at raising money from non-traditional sources. I think the fix is kind of in for the IPO. What'll be interesting is in the weeks and months to come, whether the company can put out enough news to sustain interest. Because if not, you could see that share price dwindling over the months to come. And then after 180 days, which is when insiders can sell their shares, that's, I think, when we'll really understand the story of Moderna as a public company. So lastly, Damien, uh, you and Rebecca and I will be out in San Francisco in the beginning of January for the big J.P. Morgan healthcare conference. I suspect that Moderna will have a pretty big show to put on there. I would expect that as well. So the other fascinating thing about the timing of this IPO is if everything goes according to plan, the SEC mandated quiet period will have expired just before the JP Morgan conference, which sets the stage for Moderna to have a big coming out party as a public company. And in the past, they've used JP Morgan as a staging ground for major announcements. So who knows what we'll hear come January. Time once again for everyone's favorite segment, the lightning round. So first up in the lightning round this week, we're going to talk about Grail, which is the Silicon Valley cancer testing startup working on the proverbial liquid biopsy. Right. So the news this week coming from Bloomberg is that Grail is considering going public in the United States, which comes in contrast to earlier reporting suggesting that they might do that in Hong Kong. But I think the the bigger read through is that this would be a giant IPO poised for 2019. And as we just got done talking about, that alone makes it kind of fascinating. And as we've talked about and reported previously, the Chinese IPO market or companies that go public over in China have not performed necessarily very well. Yeah, and I'm sure that's driving some of the decision-making at Grail. You know, it's interesting to think back just a few months ago, the folks at the Hong Kong Stock Exchange were talking about their plans to try to lure overseas biotechs to list in Hong Kong. And so far, we haven't seen that materialize. And I think this news about Grail's plans fits in to the challenges that they're seeing over there. So a guy who was once one of the biggest names in biotech venture capital is headed to federal prison after pleading guilty to defrauding his investors and lying to the tax collector. That's right, Damien. So Stephen Burrell, who faced up to 30 years in prison and $750,000 in fines, uh, was sentenced this week. He's going to serve just 30 months and pay $200 after signing a sealed plea agreement last year. And so, Damien, you've been following this saga as it's played out. Uh, were you surprised by the, the length of his sentence? Yes and no. On the one hand, no, because, you know, the rich history of American white collar crime suggests that 
crimes like this often carry sentences much smaller than if you were to shoplift, for example. But then a little bit, yes, because the most recent data point we have here is, of course, Martin Shkreli, who is in federal prison for a number of years, whereas Steve, as we just mentioned, I mean, 30 months for what was alleged to be a $20 million fraud does seem a little lax. And let me just say that after the sentencing, and and Damien, actually, after your story came out, I heard from, let's call him a prominent Boston-based venture capitalist who texted me, cheekily said, legendary venture capitalist, maybe in his own mind. Well, and that's a really good point. It's part of what's fascinating about Steve Burrell is that he used to be this figurehead, maybe self-appointed, but either way, he was given the platform to do so. He spoke at an annual thing at the bio conference that people attended. He was sort of like a man about town. And this is the end of what has been a a pretty fascinating fall from grace. Uh, Rebecca, what is going on with this monkeys on a plane business? That's right. So we are not talking about snakes on a plane. We're talking about monkeys on a plane. And this issue is pitting major global airlines against Pfizer, Novartis, and other top drug companies. Basically, these airlines are refusing to transport lab animals like primates or presumably mice and rats. And their defense is that they've been targeted by animal rights groups with protests that have caused service disruptions and and endangered people. And thus, the likes of Novartis and AbbVie are struggling to get those primates where they need to go. And of course, these drug companies and research universities say this policy is threatening to slow down the development of breakthrough medicines and therapies, as you often hear. And so it'll be interesting to watch this saga play out. Today, Thursday, December 6th, is the deadline for people and companies to submit comment on this issue to the government. Let me just say something here. So I'm pretty sure that Pfizer's CEO travels on his own private plane. So maybe charter jets is a solution to this problem? I mean, you're going to inject the primate with a drug, you might as well give it a nice ride on the way there. The last thing today is an invitation. If you live in the greater New York area, we are having an event for Stat Plus subscribers next Wednesday, December 12th, and we would love to see you there. Yeah, that's right. We're going to be talking about the year that was, 2018, and the year to come, 2019, when it comes to industry trends, clinical trial readouts, M&A shakeups. If you have a question, we will do our best to answer it. And you can find more information about the event on Stats' homepage. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. A big thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. So tell us what you like about this week's episode, where you're listening from, ask us questions, or just rant about how horribly wrong we really are. You can do all this by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate that feedback, so thank you very much. See you next week.